Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Vanessa Joy Walker is optimistic about the future of healthcare. She is someone who has experienced more than her fair share of challenges in that arena. In this podcast, she shares with us the reasons why she is optimistic and what we can do to share her perspective on this topic. Here to tell her story is Vanessa Joy Walker. Vanessa, thank you so much for taking the time to join me in this conversation. I know that you're a very busy lady, so we are honored to have you on the show. Well, I am very, very happy to be here with you and all of your listeners tonight, or this morning or this afternoon, depending on your time zone. Yes, we are doing this across the world. So we're across several time zones. So thank you for pointing that out. I want to introduce you straight away and say, this is somebody who has had many challenging experiences, experiences that most of us might have once or twice in the course of an entire lifetime. What have been those experiences? Just to give us an outline of your biography. I will say that some people have described my life as a messed up Monday night lifetime movie gone wrong. (laughs) I take offense to that because I feel like, hey, listen, this is my story. It is who I, it's the, it's the only life I've known. So it is what it is. But I also get a little bit of a chuckle out of it. Because when you look at my journey on paper, it does look a little bit, it does read a little bit like a, a really out of proportion, blown out of proportion drama. But um, I say that, but the truth is that many, many, many people experience far worse crises globally than even all of mine put together. And it's important for me every time I do share any details about my story to put a little caveat at the beginning to say that all of our journeys are relevant. They are are all relevant. They are all unique to us and to our circumstances. And I always hope that when someone hears a little bit about what I've gone through or what I have to offer, or they read something that I've written or something I've contributed to, that they won't think about those details, but they will really think about their own journey differently and the way they interact with crisis differently and the way they interact with other people differently. So I'll just start there. I'll give you the quick overview so we can get to the real meat. I was abandoned when I was a child, when I was a baby, and I was adopted as a baby. And then lived a pretty, I'll say normal life, although I don't like to use the word normal. I was speaking at a conference a handful of years ago and a clinician asked me, did you have a normal upbringing? And I looked at him and I said, did you? (laughs) 
And I said to the audience, I said, well, what is normal? I mean, what is normal to you is might not be normal to me. But looking back, I had perhaps what some might think is a typical upbringing. I had a mom and a dad and a brother and we lived in a lower middle class neighborhood and my dad was a minister and my mom worked at a local daycare and she wrote for the newspaper and it was a very simple life. But in the middle of that simplicity, there was a lot of complex things going on. My mom, my first mom, the mom that adopted me, or my second mom, I refer to my mom's as first mom and second mom. First mom is my biological mother. Second mom is my adoptive mom. I always say they're both real. Some people refer to their parents as real and not real. I say both of all of my parents are real. They just serve different purposes in my life. But my my second mom was diagnosed with bipolar when she was in her, I want to say she was in her late 30s, early 40s. And she had adopted me when she was in her mid 30s. And so I grew up mostly knowing her as someone with a mental health disorder. But at the time, I didn't know that that's what it was. I thought of it as this secret that we should hide because people with these kinds of issues are less than. And I say that with a little regret because I grew up really feeling like my mom was less than. And that's really sad because those were the the cultural norms that I was that I was raised with and how I watched other people treat her. I'm so thankful that she is still with us today. She's going to be 81 soon and she is just such a remarkable woman. I now see her as more than and I see myself as more than as well. But I, I share that story because when people look at my journey, they often look at the cancer. I've been diagnosed with cancer twice, once when I was 30 years old, another time when I was 36 years old. I have a BRCA2 mutation. I went into early onset menopause after my second diagnosis. I've had double mastectomies. I've had multiple lumpectomies. I've had ophorectomies, which is bilateral, having your ovaries out. You know, I've spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours in and out of doctor's offices and probably thousands of hours in waiting rooms. People often like to focus, as I said, on the cancer. But I always remind people that my brain health is as important as my cellular health (laughs) and whatever mutation it is that was with me before cancer. It was with me during cancer and it, and it's with me after cancer. So when I was a child, I developed a vocal tick and of course, growing up in a family and in an environment that did not look at any sort of mental health condition as normal, I was just told to stop doing that. I was said, you know, people just say, don't do that. Why are you doing that? It was very subtle, but I was taught 
to internalize those things and say, okay, you know, you don't talk about that stuff. I also developed severe anxiety at a young age. In years since then, in lots of therapy, I've realized that there are a lot of issues that are related to people being torn from their biological parents at a young age. There's a lot of abandonment issues. There's chemical things that go on. And there is trauma. But I didn't know that then. And of course, my parents didn't know that. No one was talking about trauma back in 1975 and 1980 as it relates to adoption. I mean, trauma was something that, that was a trauma center, right? It was something that happened either in an ER or on a battlefield. But it certainly wasn't something that happened to a young woman who was adopted by a wonderful family. Certainly, she could not have had a traumatic experience. But I've learned in years since that the anxiety that I struggled with as a young person was directly related to my abandonment, my adoption, and also a predisposition to certain kinds of mental health conditions or disorders. I know within the community, some people prefer to say condition, other people prefer to say disorder. I often say brain disease or brain disorder because I don't like to soften what a mental health condition is or a mental health disorder because I feel like we like to separate in the world that here's a real health issue, cancer, and then here's a somewhat real health issue. So we're just going to call it a condition. I have generalized anxiety disorder. That is a medical disease that I have and that I deal with on a regular basis. I have major depressive disorder. I have insomnia. I have a vocal tick disorder. Those are things that I deal with on a regular basis. I'm also a cancer survivor. I'm also someone who has a BRCA2 mutation. I'm also someone who's dealt with infertility and miscarriage and dealing with the surrogacy journey. I am all of those things wrapped up in one. (laughs) And on top of that medical stuff, of course, we have life stuff, right? I always tell, when I talk to clinicians, I always say to them, before you get to know the symptoms and their past experiences with medication, get to know their life. Get to know who your patients are, not what they have. Get to know where they went to school. Get to know if they're married. Get to know what their dreams are. Get to know what their socioeconomic status is without even asking that. You can figure those things out. What are their cultural norms? And then pile upon that the medical information, and you will have a much better chance of not only addressing the needs, but gaining the trust needed so that your, the people you are serving your patients will adhere to whatever treatment plan you give them, will comply, and will actually see the benefit of modern medicine. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. So I want to summarize a little bit. This makes sense to me also as a clinician. 
we were taught in medical school that the causes of someone's illness and the response to that illness is physical, social and psychological. And that response varies from individual to individual. So the fact that one individual responds in one way doesn't mean that another person who who responds differently is lesser because there are many other reasons why for that particular person at that particular time they are quote-unquote broken and it is okay to be broken or as Kimberly Warner one of our guests from previous conversations calls unfixed it's okay to be unfixed because that's where you are at that time where you've taken the conversation is how do we respond to that that state how do we respond to somebody who turns to us for help who is either coping well despite the traumas or is unfixed or broken in some way and what you're saying is that we need to look at that whole person the whole physical psychological and social context in which they bring their condition now this is medical school 101 and yet it is something that isn't always practiced when patients come across healthcare. They are often treated as entities that can be broken down into its component parts. So I'll fix the physical, the psychological and social, that's, that's not really my bag. That's not my ball to catch, as somebody said to me once. What is your response to that? Because you've been through this, and the reason that I wanted to explore your biography is because no one is better qualified than you to talk about this. Why is it that when we break people down into their component parts, things don't work as well as the way that you're describing? How I would respond to that is that when you compartmentalize someone's symptoms, someone's pain, or someone's circumstances, you are only seeing a part of them. You are only acknowledging a part of them. It would be like me showing up for dinner with my husband and only seeing the part of him that annoys me the most. (laughs) Well, that wouldn't be a marriage that lasts very long (laughs) because there are so many other wonderful parts about him, right? He's a complicated person. I once was doing a session and I had a clinician presentation and this clinician said, oh, I prefer for you not to say that because it might complicate things for the audience. And I said, well, respectfully, your audience is going to see people and people are complicated. When we compartmentalize individuals, we take the individual health care off the table. We no longer can have individual health care, individualized care plans, care models. We are now looking at case studies, right? We are now going all the way back to thinking of subjects. I like to say patients are not props, they are people. We are all a patient at some point in our life. Sometimes we're acting as a patient. For me, sometimes I'm acting as an advocate. Sometimes I'm acting as an educator. The clinicians I work with, sometimes they're acting as an educator or a provider or often a peer or a patient themselves. And 
as I said, when we compartmentalize what people are experiencing, we limit how well they can live with whatever health diagnoses they've received. There are plenty of individuals that are going to have some sort of chronic Ill illness for the rest of their life, whether it's a mental illness or some other kind of illness. Or they're going to experience the effects of a illness like cancer, even if they are, quote, considered cured, they're going to experience the effects of that cancer for the rest of their life. That's really important to acknowledge because we have to see how does this one little piece affect every other piece? We don't want to be siloed. Siloing things is not helpful. It prevents collaborative care. It prevents collaborative and shared decision making. Honestly, it prevents hope. Love that you use the word complicated because we like to simplify really difficult situations and offer a really simple solution because in many ways healthcare is designed that way. Now, if you can't prescribe a pill or do a, an operation or a procedure that will fix this, maybe this is not your case. Maybe you should be referring them somewhere else. I want to go back to the conversation you had about your husband and you said there are occasions when you go out to dinner and he, he's annoying you. And I'm sure this is, uh, this is not the generality. This is just a <laughs> lovely way to explore this particular topic. You have to, in that situation, find a way to bring out the best in him. Bring out the way that you know that this wonderful man has many other attributes that attracted you to him and keep you married to him and will keep you married to him for years to come. How do you do that at a, a very, and I hate to use the word simple, at a very simple level? How do you bring that out in yourself and then bring that out in him? I would say that you can't bring it out in someone else. I would say it's not your job. It's not your responsibility. There's nothing I can do about his actions. What I can do is control my own. I control how I interact with my feelings. I can, I can control how I interact with those things that might rub me the wrong way. I can control how I respond. I can control if my tone is curious or if it's harmful. My husband actually is a, a professional facilitator for life. And so sometimes we'll get into these like facilitation arguments where it's like who can facilitate each other better but you know he has this wonderful way when he facilitates where he'll, he says you know when you ask someone a question you can say hmm why did you say that that way or you can say why did you say that that way same words different meaning and this is why I'm I always go back often to the idea of communication, no matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter how wonderful the new novel treatment is. It doesn't matter how wonderful the new self-help book is or the new Brene Brown video is, whatever. If you can't figure out a way to communicate that 
the elements of that to other people and then adapt it to your own life. It just doesn't matter. It's just stuff in the ether. So communication is key. So I would say that when you're in that difficult situation where you're feeling frustrated or you're feeling annoyed or in crisis, let's just say, you have an opportunity to decide how you're going to interact with that. You have an opportunity to decide, am I going to choose hope or am I going to remain hopeless? Because those are the only two options in life. It doesn't matter what you believe in. It doesn't matter what your faith base is. Everyone believes in something. You might believe in modern medicine. You might be of the Judeo-Christian you know, faith. You might be Muslim. You, you might believe in hard work. You might believe in a person. It, everyone believes in something. And so hope is essential to life, to living. The only reason we get up every day is because we have some sort of hope. Even if it feels meager, it's there, even if we don't feel it. And so those are the choices we have. Our circumstances may not change. When I was diagnosed with cancer the first time, the second time, when I figured out that I was going to have to have my ovaries out and my breasts removed, all of that was going to happen whether or not I had hope or remained hopeless. But how I interacted with those circumstances changed depending on my choice of choosing hope or remaining hopeless. And when you decide, how to interact with your circumstances, all of a sudden, your circumstances don't control you. Now, you have some sort of agency in your life. You're able to advocate for yourself. You're able to own your experiences. And then you realize that, yeah, my life is complicated. My life will always be complicated. I'm probably always going to be a little bit of the, quote, sick girl. And that's okay. Because sometimes we choose our callings, and other times our callings choose us. And we have the opportunity to accept that or reject that. The Journal of Health Design. Fostering collaboration. Amplifying the voice of health advocates. Growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. We all have our triggers. We all have our way of responding automatically, which are not helpful in some situations. And particularly where people are stressed, where people are themselves under some sort of duress. Now, this happens particularly in healthcare, where people in those environments are pretty much at their limit of tolerance for a system that is very bureaucratic, that is underfunded, that is extremely difficult to manage, even to do the simplest of things. And then put into that situation somebody who is triggered by a thing that a patient says, whether it is a refusal to take treatment or refusal to follow advice or whether they're saying something in an angry tone which triggers the person. Now you're saying quite rightly, you can choose to really respond to that in a way that reflects back the anger to that person or you can find a way to manage that 
reaction in a way that is more helpful. How do we build those muscles? How do we build those muscles that stop us being triggered by something in a way that the reaction is going to make a bad situation a whole lot worse? (laughs) Well, well, I'll start by saying I'm not sure how we get rid of the triggers, but I think the first thing we do is we recognize that they exist. We do the internal work to figure out what they are for us. We make sure that we're getting the most up-to-date education on microaggressions and bias and accessibility. We make sure that we've done our own internal work with our own therapists and we understand our own backgrounds and how we interact, what our communication style is. As a provider, it is very important that you understand what your communication style is because you're going to have to adapt that to the communication style of your patients. So that's the first thing I would say. It's going to happen. So don't be surprised when you show up and you're annoyed with your patient and you just don't want to talk to them and you're frustrated with them. The next thing I would say is you're on the same team. I think reminding ourselves, and I have to remind myself of this, even when I get frustrated with, with people I'm either working with or my own doctors, we're on the same side here. Our goal is the same. So what is the rub? What's going on right now? In getting curious, I think one of the best phrases that I've learned from my husband, again, he's the brilliant man annoying but brilliant is that uh, he he always says you know tell me more tell me more about that I sent sent your frustration tell me more about that when you give individuals the opportunity to be heard it can change the total dynamic of a situation because almost always people want to be heard people are in crisis they don't understand I have a friend who is a a teacher at a a well-known hospital. She's an ER. She teaches nurses and she runs the ER. And the thing that she says to all of her new incoming nursing students is this. She says, listen, at some point you're going to see probably hundreds and hundreds of broken arms, hundreds and hundreds of stitches on the forehead. And what I want you to remember is that person that's coming in with that broken arm or needing that stitch on the forehead is probably their first time. And you need to treat it as such. Crisis changes our emotional DNA. It changes how we feel about things in the moment and long term. And that isn't to say that patients and people being served hold no responsibility to be respectful, but it is something to say that that there is a heightened level of anxiety and stress when you enter into a space that is unknown and you are now trying to figure out how to navigate the space. I always describe getting diagnosed with cancer like getting dropped out of a plane in the middle of nowhere with nothing 
and being told you have to find your way back to civilization with a bunch of people you don't know. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it, right? That's what it feels like. And so even if someone's coming in with what you might think as small or what perhaps they've been told is small, oh, that's not a big deal. Don't worry about that. It minimizes their pain. It minimizes their fear. Fear is real. Acknowledging that openly is really important. You're quite right. When they walk out the door, with those sutures or that broken arm, they're going to have to live with that situation. You, on the other hand, move on to the next person and so on and so forth. You're not going home in pain. You're not going home with the cancer diagnosis. So that is a given. I love what you said earlier, and that was that we need to do our own internal work. Now, I'm thinking in particular, when we're teaching consultation skills in medical school, we say to the person, now focus on what the patient said. Where were their eyes? What were they trying to convey? What was the moment at which they paused, at which they touched their face or crossed their arms? Or did So we do a lot of this kind of training. What we never do is say, did you observe your own reaction? Did you see that you crossed your arm? Did you see that you turned your body? Did you see that you picked up the pen and started writing and interrupted the patient mid-sentence while they were pouring their heart out about the pain that they were experiencing? And to your words, you did not see that person. You did not hear that person. What you saw and heard was your solution. and You went after that rather than the real problem, the real diagnosis, which they were about to tell you, if only you'd taken the time to do your own, in your words, internal work. Where do you see hope in the system? In all the time that you've been doing this advocacy work, have you seen this narrative now beginning to take hold in the world that you have been exploring? I mean, yes and no. It's complicated, like, like everything else. I, I would say that it's really easy to get discouraged when you think about healthcare, no matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter if you live in a, a country that has universal healthcare, that has socialized healthcare, or healthcare like we have in the United States, or something in between. In general, providing healthcare for people is hard. That's why it's a, it's been, it's a constant discussion in every community. I grew up in Canada, so I grew up under one system, and I've experienced what it's like to be a caregiver in that system with my mother. And of course, I've lived in the United States since 1994, and so I understand this system as well. So when we only think about the systems and how the systems are failing us and failing the doctors and failing everyone, it's, man, it's just this like, well, let's just, you know, pour me a drink and, you know, <laughs> let's move on to the next thing. We have to step back from that and realize we are not going to solve the healthcare, any healthcare problem in our lifetime, like the large umbrella problems. What we can do is think about what is in our sphere 
what do we have the ability to influence? And then we can start there. And I actually have great, great hope for healthcare and for everyone involved clinicians, providers, support staff, hospitals, innovators, pharma, because we all need each other. Now, listen, are there some, what, what some people might call bad players? Certainly, there are in any industry. There are individuals in every industry that are trying to take advantage of someone. Yes, in healthcare, you might see that more often or that is what is highlighted. So what I like to say is, instead of fighting with each other, how do we figure out how to get along, talk about what's important, and then get on the same page so that we can take our now newfound friendship and shared goals and create laws, policies, and practices that help to shape the future. Because ultimately, that's what we have to do. Ultimately, at some point, we have to get together and we have to figure out how are we going to shape what happens next. And that starts right now. It's happening in the labs, but it's also happening in the classrooms. It's happening in the HR departments of organization. It's also happening in the realm of advocacy. Everyone is an advocate. At some point in everyone's life, they are going to find themselves in a position where they are either advocating for themselves or they are advocating for someone they love. I would actually say they'll find themselves in both of those positions. So even if that is not your job, we are all called to advocacy if we want a better world. And I have met people in pharma. I have met clinicians. I have met people in insurance, people that run hospitals, other advocates. I have met people in every sector that are in it for the right reasons that want to figure out how to take what we've been given and shape it into something that serves people more equitably and also helps there to be better outcomes so that we have healthier communities. I find it hopeful that we're even having this conversation that doctors are even willing to share the stage with someone that even five years ago, they would just say, oh, she's just a patient or she's just the patient perspective. That in and of itself is a step forward because we all have to have a seat at the table. And I do see individuals inviting patients, inviting people with lived expertise, inviting caregivers into the room where decisions are made. Is it happening everywhere? Nope. Are there a lot of issues? Yes. But but we have to have hope. I mean, I go all the way back to what we were talking before. I can either sit here with you and say, oh, everything sucks. You know, it's really hard out there. 
Or I can say, yep, here's the circumstances. And I'm not going to deny the circumstances, but I'm going to choose how I interact with them. And I'm going to find people who want to shape the future in the same way that I want to do that. And then I'm going to band together with them. Many people who talk about healthcare do talk about it being broken. Many think, many think it's getting worse. Many think that the inequities that we all experience are almost beyond remedy. If you look back at the ones that we've, the people that we've been speaking to, the people that you and I have been interacting with, and even in our interaction here, there's one thing that you've said that points to what those people could do right now on their own without any further need for funding or policy change. And you've said, do your internal work. Vanessa, it's, it's been a blessing spending time with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>